despite doing just three similar sessions, that person improved incredibly because they didn't really miss that. Um, and they were really, you know, we really push the VO2 threshold type of training sessions. And it's because we know the outcomes are so, so vastly more beneficial than just doing uh, long, easy, slow riding. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. This year in our Trivelo group, we had two insane but very different FTP improvement results in our athletes. Athlete A went from 4.1 watts per kilo as an FTP, which was 300 watts for them, to 5.0 watts per kilo, which was 360 watts over a 16-week period. Athlete B went from 2.9 to 3.8 watts per kilo, so 220 watts for them to 285 over a similar period. So what was the difference? One athlete did mostly zone 2 training mixed with a bit of high intensity, and the other did purely high intensity sessions with minimal to no zone 2. So... That begs the question, do you really need to do do zone two training? There are a lot of factors at play here and we're going to discuss them later in the episode. It's a great case study of zone two versus basically VO2 max training. Dad, welcome to the episode. We'll get into that later. Firstly, what are you grateful for? Thanks, George. Once again, a very topical topic that we're going to be talking about today because um, it is a bit of a buzzword zone two at the moment and uh, I'm really excited to discuss this because it is very specific what we're going to talk about. Um, so the gratitude today, I, I am absolutely so happy that someone invented the TV remote control uh, because there's there's that much flicking from from one sport channel to another sport channel. Um, imagine having to get up out of your seat every time to change channels like we used to do, um, which you would never remember back in the the 1970s when we first got a tally into our lounge room, um, the only way to change stations was to get up out of your seat and change it physically um, on the TV. Um, it had a dial that you turned um, and uh, it spoiled the whole relaxing <laughs> aspect of watching tally because you just had to, if you wanted to watch two programs at once, you had to keep getting out of your seat. So so the remote control has absolutely been a brilliant uh, invention because I was just flicking from you know the tour um, and I love the Ashes cricket, so I was, um, whichever one was more riveting at any particular point, I was actually watching that for an extended period and then flicking back and thinking, damn it, I just missed the break or I just missed a wicket. Um, and then, you know, while, I was, while lunch was on at the cricket, I ended up watching Wimbledon. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great time to be in Europe. And, of course, um, you know, the sport is, is just rife there with summer Um and, you know, the Diamond League, the cricket, the, the tennis, the cycling, um, there is so many um, elite sports going on um, in summer. And uh, it's it's really one thing that keeps us going, isn't it, in winter in Australia is to uh, to tune in to what's happening uh, in the Northern Hemisphere of the world uh, during our, our winter period, which is pretty dull and cold. 
<laughs> to indulge. Yep, yeah, no, my gratitude is very simple. It's just the fact that the tour was on. Uh, just can't get enough of it. The first week has been absolutely epic. Um, probably one of the most hectic weeks for the GC contenders uh, in a long time. And they did that on purpose. So it's been great to watch. I can't believe it's only been a week down. They've got two more weeks to go and they look exhausted. And <laughs> the poor sprinters have had an absolute hell of a start to the, to the tour. So absolutely loving that it's on. And I guess that brings us to our first part of what's caught your attention. Let's chat about the tour so far. What's been happening? What's caught your attention? What have you loved? Um, yeah, there's so much to talk about and um, we're going to have to um, try and cram in the first seven days into one episode, um, which is not easy. Um, yeah, I'm always interested in the form that ath- uh, athletes, I suppose, cyclists come into the tour with and what happens to their form as they progress through the three weeks. And we're at uh, the one-third mark of a 21 day tour we're at day seven um and already the form of some riders has been good and bad and and if you're finding yourself uh um ben o'connor would be an example where he's just bewildered as to what is happening with his form and he's he's actually being interviewed and saying i don't know what's really going on um i couldn't be in any worse feelings about how i'm riding and it's kind of not what you want to get to a, to a, you know, and he's such a, you know, he's a top 10 um, GC contender and he's just not able to perform the way he wants to. And and even Pogacar, you know, on stage three or four, whatever it was, um, Vinegar attacking him and Pogacar not being able to respond. And then one day later, the reverse happened. And that almost doesn't make sense. Uh, if, if you're in form you should be able to hold that for a few a few days, even up to a few weeks. And if you're not in form, you know, that will stay like that and doesn't really change within twenty four hours. Yet it did. And and that's it's that's what makes it exciting really, um, is to see that, you know, even the best in the world have good and bad days. And it's how they react to that. And I, I really take my hat off to Pogachar had a shocker, really, in his, you know, in his high standards to be ridden away from. That hasn't happened to him many times in any races um, in the last three or four years. So for someone to attack him and ride away, I mean, it happened last year for uh, Vinegar to win the Tour, um, but that's about the only other time I can remember someone has been able to do that to him. Um, and and he didn't lose his cool. He didn't drop his bundle. He he gathered his his uh, mental state and and came out the next day and did the same to Vinegard, which I just thought was super impressive um, and shows the measure of uh, character and and that, you know, just because you have a bad performance on one particular day doesn't mean that's it for the next 21 days. You, you've just got to have that mental resolve to, to uh, you know, think about it and put it in perspective about, well, you know, there's other opportunities here. Um, let's just not you know, drop my bundle and curl up in the corner and, and wave the white flag. And I think that's that's impressive. That's the nature of Grand Tours, isn't it? It's that the stages are so intense and so hard that you don't know how you're going to recover each day by day. And um, this it's just they're out of this world how tough a Grand Tour is. And so, yeah, every day is a bit of a lottery, it seems like, to whether you have good legs or not. And this is such a great lesson for... Um, as always for us age group amateur athletes where if you look at uh, comparatively, Paul Gattrall looks like he's had a shocker, like you just said, because Vingar's just run away from him. But they both rode, um, I, can't, I can't remember exactly what it 6. was. 6.9 watts per kilo, George. 
and I looked up I looked up uh, Vinegard's weight, and it's sixty kilos. So that means you you know six point nine watts per kilo. He had to ride four hundred and fifteen watts for twenty one minutes. Seven hundred watts for fifteen minutes. What was it? It was wait. Uh, no, it was. It was 418 watts if, if he's... Yeah, 415, you're right. Yeah, yeah 415 yeah, so um, for 21 yeah, yeah. minutes. So yeah, so yeah. anybody who's heavier than him, they're looking at, you know, Pogacar weighs 70 kilos, so he's having to ride at 460 watts for 21 minutes to to keep up. And, you know, a guy like Wout Van Aert, who weighs maybe, I don't know what he weighs, 75, 76 maybe, he's having to ride at 500 watts to keep up for 21 minutes. So... Um, so the numbers are just ridiculous, and and I was looking at a stat. They've they've ridden that climb many times in the tour, and that was uh, the fastest ever, and it was a minute and a half faster than what Pogacar had ridden the previous time, where he also rode, rode away and won that stage. So it wasn't it wasn't really that he wasn't riding that badly. It was just that Vinegar was riding out of this world yeah and that's my exact point and it's you know if you compare to just what's around you then you can really put yourself in a hole but he's, he's riding incredibly well especially coming into the tour relatively underdone when he's when he broke his wrist eight weeks ago and then also you look at Jai Hindley and uh, you know you could say that he rode unbelievably to get the yellow jersey uh, and then the same thing couldn't hang on to them the next day but you take away them two Pogacar and Vinegar because they are absolute freaks um He's winning the tour, you know. He's the best of the rest, and he's riding out of this world. And same thing, they're just riding the fastest times ever up some of these climbs. And so, um, yeah, comparison can be the thief of joy. But um, it's always great to, you know, try and get an objective view of um, how you're actually riding. And I hope someone in, you know, I hope Pogacar was aware that you know the time that went up there was way faster, um, so that he wouldn't drop his bundle and go, "I'm actually riding really well here." And this can happen in any race to us where you might not feel like you're riding well because um, someone that you normally racing well against is just absolutely on a flyer but they could just have an outstanding day and 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 do a pb and break a record or they could just be having a good first half of the race uh, which happened again that next day where on the tourmalay vingard went again and pogachar commented after saying he said if he keeps this up i'm done you know this is race over um and that's a hard place to be you're really on your limit there and it's like that classic can you just hang on for one more second can you just hang on over the top and then turns out in the final climb he was able to ride away from him so um, just all these mental games that you have to play with yourself to to try and get through these periods. I think it's just yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and um, look, there's a few things that come into play here because if these two guys are so far ahead of the rest of the field, well, it's really now it comes down to tactics. Um, and that was the intriguing part for me was to see the tactics between UAE and Jumbo Visma. And I I think the day the day where Pogacar got ridden away from, I think the tactics from UAE were were pretty ordinary um, and and to be fair, they don't have the same quality of rider in their team um, or the depth in their team. So they've got some great riders in their team. Um, make no mistake about that. But they don't have eight riders who who are, you know, when you when you think about what what Jumbo Visma have, you know, to have any no one has a Wout van Aert. And and that's that's like your trump card in a poker game. It's just it's incredible to have him uh, on the team. But but from the team tactics point of view, um, I thought um, uh, Yambo Visma got it really spot on uh, the day that um, Vinegar rode away. And then they tried the same tactic the next day. And as you mentioned, Pogacar was fearful when they started lining up the next day, and they started the same tactic. He was he was asking himself, "Can I keep up today?" Because uh, they're doing the same thing as they did yesterday. Imagine, you know, you've just climbed uh, the the Aspen climb, which is, and I was saying to you before we started, I've ridden 
all three of this the climbs that were on this stage, Aspen, Tourmalet, and the Quarter Quarteret, I think it's called, um, and uh, they're all incredibly hard climbs, um, and it was really hot, and and that that's going to take a lot out of you. So the team tactics for Jumbo Visma were identical to the day before, and why wouldn't you do that? Because you've already broken Pogacar um, the day before, so do it again whilst he's seemingly in poor form. Um, but as we just mentioned, he really wasn't. Uh, it was it was just that Vinegar was you know, too good on the, on the day. Um, but the tactics that uh, they tried was to you know put everybody on the front again and and get Wout into the break, um, which I thought was you know initially a good tactic. Um, I was questioning it a little bit, uh, but when it panned out that they wanted him to be uh, available after they climbed the Tourmalet. Um, to ride through the valley before they got to um, to the the, the quarterette um, last climb, and that's exactly what happened. But uh, but they used Sep course to drop everybody um, on the Tourmalet, which they successfully did. Was only three riders left. Um, they dropped the yellow jersey. Dropped um, Joe Hindley. He was the last rider to, to fall off, and and then they attacked with. 2K to go at the top of the Tourmalet and um, Sepp Kuss done a great job again and left it for Vinegar to really launch another attack like he did the day before. And this time Pogacar could respond and hold onto the wheel. And and that was must have been a great moment for Pogacar thinking, oh, good, I, I am I am okay. And, and so they got to the top of the climb and – that should have been the point when Jumbo Visma's next tactic, which was to do the same thing again on the Quarteret climb, try and ride Vinegard off the wheel, they had failed already on the Tourmalet. So why would they continue with that tactic on the next climb, which is what they did? They should have changed tactics right there and then. They should have waited for Sepp Kuss to catch back up again and even a few few more of the numbers um, from, from uh, Jumbo Visma to get back on so that they could actually – uh, let Vinegard attack um, Pogacar rather than leading him out because all they eventually did was ride on the front all day um, on every single climb and and almost led Pogacar out to the, a, a great victory, which 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 to me it's easy in hindsight. I know that, um, but but once the tactic didn't work on the Tourmalet, why would they repeat it on the last climb? That's my question, um, and. And and I think I think that was easy for Pogacar, not easy, but he was following the wheel. And and Vinegard, you know, was after Wout van Aert pulled off. Vinegard sat on the front for I can't remember how long it was in minutes, but it was long enough at that level for Pogacar to get recovery and then counterattack. And and Vinegard actually wasn't paying attention when he did it. And and I'm shouting at the telly going, why are you sitting on the front? What are you doing this for? This is this is dumb. You've already done this on the Tourmalet and it didn't work. Now you're doing it again. I'm just going, oh, this is really bad tactics. Um, He's got confidence in his form at least. And what I love about Vinegard and Jumbo Visma, uh, and this was evident in the tour documentary that came out, is they, they want to win the race. They don't want to wait for the race to be won or for something to happen. They want to make it happen themselves. And that's what Vinegar was doing. He was he was trying his best to just win the race and and yeah, based on hindsight, based on what they knew so far, it looked like Pogacar didn't have good legs the day before. They want to bury him. Um they did the same tactics work last year with, you know, the lead outs and they got rid of him. And uh in the Tour de France Doco, I loved this specific 
um, where it was stage three or four or five, where there was the Roubaix stage where they went on all the cobbles. And in the team bus, their tactics were actually to get some time that day on a flat stage in a GC. And I just thought that shows a great mindset that they are coming coming to the tour saying, you know, we're here to win. And the, the stage actually ended up a disaster for them. You know, they all lost, Roglic and Vinegar lost time and crashed and everything. But their mindset for the day was to try and win some time there, which I think that's carried over to this year. So it's really exciting to watch. Well, no, I just agree. I agree with what you just said. And, um, and but, but sometimes, as we've said many times on this podcast, if your actual plan on race day is not working successfully, you need to change before it's too late. And I think, I think they didn't react and didn't think it through because they had time. They had time to think that through. Um, from the top of the Tourmalet to the bottom of the next climb, and I've done that descent, and it's a long way. Um, you know, they they really, if they're that confident, they should have allowed almost 10, 15 riders to come back on um, and have Sepkus and, and put the situation like they had exactly the same day the day before where Vinegard could come from behind. Um, and he's not sat in the wind at all. Because um, he'd already sat in the wind on the top of the Tourmalet from when he attacked to the top, and now he's doing it again. So there's two sections where he's burnt matches and Pog hasn't. Yeah, exactly. I do wish that uh, Remco was in the tour. It would just be such a great battle to have three GC teams, three riders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. Um, yeah, that would be um, very interesting for for Yumbo's side. But yeah, I think Pogacar versus Vingard versus. Um, versus Remco would just be um, out of this world. It's a race that I think everyone can't wait to see. Yes, and look, just before we leave this, um, you, everybody knows we love Wout. <laughs> that's, that's that's a given. But he, his performance on the Tourmalet stage, that was out of this world. He got on the front in the break and drove the break and sat on, sat on the front all the way up the Tourmalet, all the way up Aspen, in the valley, he was driving it. He pretty much rode on the front from the time the, the stage started. And then he waited it. He got over the top of the Tourmalet, waited for Pog to join, uh, for Vinegard and Pog to join, and then drove it back to catch the breakaway up the road and rode straight past the breakaway and then rode to the base of the climb for the, for the last climb and stayed on the front until 4K to go. He literally rode 160k on the front at a pace that no one else could keep up with. I, like, there's not too many bike riders in the world who could do that in the history of cycling. I, I, it is an amazing. He's a special rider. There's, and and that that got no result that day. So, you know, it it would be frustrating for him to to be sitting on the massage table that night thinking, well, I just rode the hardest day of my life and and we got rolled today. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about the little kind of, you know, the rivalry that almost the fake rivalry that got sparked up from the Tour de France doco where there's there's a rift between um, Inside Yumbo, which they've just come out and said, and I think everyone knows it's just completely untrue, but there has to be a small part of where that does sit there at the end of the day and go, well, if I wasn't burning myself here, I could probably win a fair few more stages. <laughs> like, And that's kind of just fact. He's just that good that if he wasn't sacrificing himself, and I guess that cycling is, um, 
in order for him to win the days he wants to, where he gets to be the number one rider at um, Flanders and at Roubaix, guys have to sacrifice for him. And so to be part of this team, maybe that's this is his sacrifice. That Yeah, he'd like, he'd like to win more Tour de France stages, but... It begs the question, does a Wout Van Aert and a Sepp Kuss go to another team to get to get their opportunities? Um, and, you know, it's great that Jumbo have got such a, a, a depth in their team, but how long can they keep guys like Rog, Rogic, Van Aert, Kuss, Vinegard? I mean, they're the, they're the top four riders and the top 10 riders in the world at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, on the women's side, the Giro Don um, just finished and Annemiek van Vluten won her record-breaking sixth Grand Tour in a row, which just has to be said that that is just a ridiculous effort in the last six tours. She's won three Veltas, two Giros, and one Tour de France, the first Tour de France femme that was last year. I think that is just um, absolutely outstanding and um, one of the reasons she's one of, if not the greatest um, cyclist ever. So I just think it was that kind of goes underdone when um, the Giro Dom is on at the same time as the Tour de France, but that is just um, the most outstanding performance. And if, um, yeah, any rider was able to repeat that, you know, it'd be out of this world. So it has to be said. And she can do it all, can't she? She can she can climb the hill, she can time trial, she can she can ride one day stages. Um, yeah, she's she's a talent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, last thing I want to mention, which is you know we, we have been asking this form question, but um, the World Athletics Champs are in a month, and then a lot of the national champs were held over the last weekend or two with the US. British national champs making a lot of headlines and it's interesting to see a lot of athletes forms coming from diamond league into these national champs because you have to perform well at these to actually get to the worlds and or people have already started qualifying for the Olympics. Um, but you've got a peak and then you've got a, a month again till the worlds comes around. So it's going to be really interesting to see how these athletes peaked this race, potentially qualified and then can they hold that form or can they have a break and then get back into form in a month's time? It's going to be uh, really fascinating to see. Yeah, we do talk about this a lot because it is a hard gig, isn't it? To, it's it's no different to cyclists um, who are doing, say, the tours, and then they're going to have to line up for the world championships. Um, so you know, how do you how do you double dip with your form? Um, and you know, some people do it really well, and that was one of the things that uh, they were mentioning very early on. With Pog was saying, you know, remember he won um, Liège Bastogne, he won Flanders, and you, and we were talking about it on this podcast, how will he do when he comes to the tour? And of course, he broke his wrist um, in in the meantime, and so you know, he's possibly underdone because of the because of the injury, and it could actually help him, um, um, you know. Freshen up for, you know, two weeks into the tour, he could actually get better, which is quite scary. And as we know, nothing motivates you more than when you're injured. And for him, who's someone who just froth cycling more than anyone, for him to be injured, uh, maybe that mental break was a real good spark for him to just come into his next training block, his final training block, and then the tour just absolutely firing. You know, he's got no mental fatigue. He's ready to go. So uh, on that note, uh, I think everyone would like a little quick update on your um your injury update and your mindset at the moment, you're in week 10 now. So what's your key takeaways at the moment where you're at on the journey? Yeah, and uh, it's probably no surprise, but I'm, um, I'm full of complaints um, about my, my progress. And I suppose the number one takeaway is that I just got to keep reminding myself that it is, you know, it is a slow journey. It's a long journey and, and you've got to be in that mindset to, to keep yourself sane because it can get quite frustrating that you're not progressing as quickly as you like. And, 
And to say it's it's excruciatingly slow is an understatement. Um, and I, I've you know I'm really getting my head around that a bit more um, as each training session. And you know all of a sudden I can ride now at 180 watts for half an hour and nearly 200 watts. And and you know we have a Thursday night uh, Trivello handicap race, and I jumped in that and you know started at the front front of the race, which is um, quite ironic. Uh, three years ago I was uh, off scratch in a grade and now i'm off limit in b grade so uh, uh, what's the saying my hat the 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 great have fallen or something um how the mighty have fallen so um so it's it's kind of humbling a little bit um but uh but i i just i just have to remind myself all the time that um i've just got to be patient and not get ahead of myself yeah sure it's week 10 um but i've really only been riding um you know a little bit for four weeks um and and i had that calf injury so i couldn't walk so i'm a little bit behind um uh, where i wanted to be but that's okay um i've I've just i've just got to keep my head focused on each day and seeing what i can get done and i've had some really great help from uh dr jordan moncrief um, who's really given me some some really specific stuff to work on uh getting my back muscles to function again because that's I, you know, even though my back is now um, healed, as in terms of the surgery from uh, from the, the great Mister Wang, um, the bus the back muscles aren't functioning because they've had so much inactivity. So I've really, I've really had to start to teach them how to how to how, how the body has you know the body the body runs better when everything's aligned and and functioning as one where at the moment each muscle's on on their own journey and they're they're not they're not participating the way i want them to um so i really need to concentrate on that aspect even more so than the than the the riding of the bike um so i've got to i've got to get that right first before i can actually progress better on the bike and that's been a tough lesson one that i know one that i tell other other athletes that i coach all the time but i've actually had to take my own advice here and and pull back on the riding so that i can you know it's the the back is sore walking around still it's it, because because the muscles are being used when they're not actually ready to be used and i need to strengthen them first um and so a little bit ahead of myself there it's a probably uh, it's not probably it is a good example of um uh yeah anytime something's new and uncomfortable we tend to go back to what we're comfortable with and for you that's you know cycling it's like easy well that's an easy thing to fall back on because that's what i've always done and so the challenge is to have to really get yourself up to do the things that you're not used to and um yeah that's that's such a metaphor for anyone starting out a new program it's going to be a whole lot of things that you're not used to but um, once you do them consistently enough you do get used to them so and I think it's also another good example to you know turn up to the Zwift races on Thursday night completely out of form completely you know 100, 120 watts off what you can normally ride, but you know, still enjoy the process of putting a number on. And I know that you kind of you want to jump in because it gives you a bit of variety compared just to the really boring, easy, slow rides you have to do all week. So, um, it's a yeah, it's a good example of of turning up. A lot of people avoid racing when they're out of form, um, avoid it when they're just not where they want to be. Um, and so yeah, I think it is good. Um, good mindset shift to have to go, no, I'm willing to do it even if I, I'm at the front compared to the back and um, look at it in a different light and not expect yourself to be um, anywhere near where you want to be but still enjoy the process. Yeah, it just reminds me that and I I definitely love results. Don't There's no doubt in my mind that I love winning but I also love the journey equally as much as I, as I love if I actually get to win something. Um, 
So I'm not defined by whether I win or lose. I'm defined by that whole process of getting to that point where I've put myself in a position to have a crack at winning or losing. So um, as long as I've done the best on the day and that may not be or may be good enough, I'm, I'm absolutely happy with that. If I come if I come 50th and I've done a PB, um, I, I, I'm happy as Larry with that. But but I really enjoy the process and 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 the structure of getting myself – up each day to get myself to that point. So, so you know, doing a, a Zwift crit race that's run by our, our own coaching business, um, you know, I could say that I'm not going to do that because my competitiveness won't let me, you know, come last um, in that. But I'm not thinking like that. I'm thinking like every opportunity I have to put myself into a training situation that's going to improve me that's where I should be and and not have the ego that I used to have where I'm only going to race when I'm in peak form. And if that was the case now, I'd never race ever again um, because my form is so far away from peak. It's literally a year away. So I'm just not going to have that approach. I'm going to put myself in positions where, you know, and you think about some of the pros when they're going to races that are part of their journey for maybe the tour. Um, or the welter or the giro they're putting themselves in a lot of these quality races that are really meaningful but they might be coming you know as a gc contender they might be not going well at all um but they don't avoid them they go in there because they know it's part of the process to get them to the form that they need to be when it counts and i think that's that's what i'm taking into this journey is to keep putting myself out there no matter what the outcome is as long as I'm improving each week and already I've I've done three weeks of it um of these Thursday night races um I did the time trial I did race one I did race two and my power has gone from 140 to 180 to 200 in three weeks so that's that's a great uh chemical release to your brain of of success um and that's that's what I'm and that makes me feel good um, and it, does, it doesn't have to be a win to make me feel good. Yeah. No, it's a great update. I think it's good to follow the journey and um, we'll see you when you're back at 300 watts because uh, no doubt it'll get there eventually. Uh, but let's let's look at today's case study example to finish off. Uh, we just thought this was a really good case study to highlight and we just wanted to highlight some differences and uh, really talk about um, this concept because, yeah, there's just a lot of talk about that, you know, athletes should just be smashing zone two training and that's the key to everyone's success. And, um. Yeah, it's just not as simple as that. And yeah, this this is this example is just really interesting. Where both athletes, um, uh, it has to be said that they these are both experienced athletes. So um, the form that was starting in just happened to be they were out of form. So they hadn't these weren't all PB. You know, they had ridden much higher watts before. They were just yeah out of form and and starting at a lower point than normal. Um, but yeah, both improved fifty or sixty or so watts um, over a three to four month journey and. Which ended up being um, coincidentally 0.9 um, watts per kilo um, for both athletes. So athlete A went from 4.1 to 5, and athlete B went from 3.9 to 4.8. Uh, but yeah, quite different training styles. Uh, there are definitely some commonalities, and there are different, definitely some differences. And that's what we wanted to highlight. And um, the basic, the reason behind the training program differences was one athlete had a lot more time to train than the other. So um, that was what dictated the training program. So athlete A did a lot of zone two work um, and obviously hit the key high intensity sessions in there as well, as well as some you know, race specific sessions. Um, and athlete B had, had less time to train. So they just did um, basically pure high intensity sessions and that was it. So yeah, talk us through your, your, your thoughts as a coach looking at these two athletes and 
the insane results that happened from yeah two very different approaches. Yeah, and and let's be specific here. We're only talking about one metric, and that is um, how much improvement over twenty minutes. And so, if we if we looked at other metrics, such as their best five minute power, their best one minute power, best thirty seconds, best one hour, and and their capabilities to cope with a two or three hour ride, and you would see huge variations in the data. Um, but but that that so everybody listening needs to understand we're just measuring it against. FTP for twenty minutes, um, and so so it's kind of it's kind of important that message because if if we gave uh, uh, the option uh, rider B um, uh, a two and a half hour ride, he would perform absolutely woefully. He's got no endurance. He, he's basically just done short high intensity sessions, and he's good for thirty thirty minutes maximum, thirty five maybe, but he's great for twenty. Um, and rider A has done, you know, a fair volume of zone two. So he would be probably great up to two hours, three hours. Um, and it's been proven and he has done a lot of those events that have been that distance up to four hours and performed unbelievably well. Um, so, so there's a vast contrast, even though their data is showing exactly the same progress in terms of, uh, you know, going up 0.9, I think you said 0.9, uh, watts per kilo. Even, evenly at both, uh, compare, comparing both athletes. So, so my my take is that yes, uh, this is this is um, one metric. So that's the key point I'm trying to get across. It's one metric, and and yes, they're both ended up with exactly the same outcome, but they're both very different fit fitness based riders at the moment. They're, they're chalk and cheese between the two. Um, and that's not to say that uh, they're not both having fun doing it, but uh, but one has to understand his limitations and he's good for events that are 35 minutes and the other one has way more opportunities to do a lot more variation in his uh, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month um, aspirational goals. Um, so, yeah, so that's my first point. Yeah, and it comes down to that. Yeah, the first question is what were they what were they training for? And athlete A was training for endurance events that were two to two and a half to three hours, and um, athlete B just wanted to get their fitness back and just wanted to have fun racing on Zwift and and doing um, thirty minute efforts and and wasn't interested in, in more than that. So yeah, that does highlight that first difference. I was just going to say I might add that had athlete B been able to do a bit more endurance, I reckon his FTP would have gone up slightly higher. Um, um, and, and that's that's something we have said many times uh, from a lot of the scientific research that we've you know done on our own athletes and some of the, the data that's been done um, by the, the men in the white coats in the lab. Um, you know it does it does you want to really I'd love to have found out um, had we been able to do some endurance training um, had that person you know not just done three high intensity sessions each week. Um, and uh, done some endurance, would it have been a bigger improvement for that particular person? But anyway, that's just a, something we'll never know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, And that's always the case with these case studies and these examples and the fact that they're anecdotal and not pure, um, purely uh, scientifically measured um, tests and protocols where every variable is kind of measured. Uh, there's just so many unknowns and there's so many if, that, if, if this or if that. Um, and even the nature of a lot of um, sports science studies just has this problem as well. It's like it comes down to... Um, you know, how do you test something? What metric are you using to test? The very first point you brought up, you know, um, you're tr- 
often we're trying to test, you know, intervention improvements, um, but then the actual result can be influenced by how the the test subject performs in that test. You know, they might get to the 20-minute FTP test at the end of the intervention at the end of 12 weeks and execute really horribly. And then the whole test becomes void because they've just, they went out too hard and then they've just kind of butchered the, what the result would show. And so, um, that's just an example. So, uh, yeah, there is a lot of complicated factors here, but we're just trying to um, give an anecdotal perspective on, on things that could influence um, your decision making around your training and I think we do want to highlight some consistencies in the training protocols and that is the fact that the high intensity sessions themselves were quite similar in nature not exactly the same but um, they were they are mostly VO2 based um, very high intensity you know really that upper threshold work and the other thing is that both athletes were really consistent in their program even though they were training a different amount of uh, frequency per week so different amount of times different volume very different volume um, start contrasting the volume intensity was similar in the high intensity sessions, but obviously athlete A was doing a lot more zone two work outside of that. But regardless, both were consistent across that three to four month period um, in what they had to do. And so that is a really important factor is that most of the time, if you are consistent, you're just going to see some really good improvement. Yeah, you couldn't have uh, hit the nail on the head any better because, you know, despite doing just three similar sessions, that person improved incredibly because they didn't really miss that. Um, and they were really, you know, we really pushed the VO2 threshold type of training sessions and it's because we know the outcomes are so, so vastly more beneficial than just doing uh, long, easy, slow riding. Um, and, you know, if you want to step up and improve your performance from week to week and have some progression, you actually have to ride or train or run or swim um, at some point harder than you're going to do in a 20 minute test so so if you if you just trained your say you started at 220 watts and you just trained at 220 watts at threshold for for 16 weeks you're probably going to come to that 20 minute test in six weeks time and ride really well at 220 watts um and so we could easily do that as a test but there's no point because we know that's what's going to happen you need to be giving some overload so so this is where those high intensity sessions are going to get the outcome you want and and by stressing the body to a load that's that it has to actually adapt to um, is where you get that improvement. And of course, you have to have the recovery in between, but to allow that load to be absorbed. But at the end of the day, unless unless you're doing these sessions, you're not going to progress. So the question that we're trying to answer for the episode is: Do you need to be doing zone two training? Because someone would look at this and go, "Well, far out, athlete B didn't bother with any of that. You know, didn't waste any time with any of that, and they got the uh, the same kind of percentage of improvement." Um, and yeah, there's there's almost no way to answer it clearly. Um, but we do want to finish off with some thoughts about the answer to that question. And um, yeah, like you said, they were doing three high intensity sessions a week, and they were really getting on and flogging themselves for you know, 20, 30, or forty minutes, whatever they had, they had time for. Um, really hard work. It's, it's a hard thing to do to get on get on the session and, and flog yourself like that three times a week. And um, a lot of people actually find that harder than the zone two work because you just, you're really putting yourself in that red zone. And um, this athlete could handle it and um, a lot of athletes can handle it. But, um, you know, you look at the Joe Freel example and the reason we don't just do that as a training program all the time, all the time is because most age group athletes won't be able to handle that. And they'll break down, they'll probably get injured, something will happen. Um, and you really, you want to spread out those high intensity sessions um, so that you can actually handle it week on week, month on month basis. And you know, for, as I said, Joe Friel's example is he'll do max two high intensity sessions a week, very spread out Tuesday on Saturday or something. And so that's that's kind of the extreme end of the scales of what you're looking at here in, in a training program. Yeah, there's a whole lot to, to really 
delve into here and you know if you if you strip it back a little bit doing three hard sessions and then doing very little in between is almost like doing the 80-20 rule um, except in the 80 you're not doing anything you're just recovering it's 20% hard 80% nothing <laughs> that's right and and the other person's doing 20% hard with some zone two which is which is perfect and that's why that other person has come out of the 16 weeks a far more well-rounded athlete than person B who's just done but but if we if we looked at the data, it doesn't read like that because we're looking at one metric, and that that's the point I, I want to get across. And so, what is what is the difference between between the two, and and what does it mean? Um, it really means that I would not be um, advising athletes to do this. This is something that's short term, and and it's unsustainable. Yeah, it's unsustainable. It's totally unsustainable, and you will you will have vast improvements over eight weeks, twelve weeks, sixteen weeks, and then it will stop. It will stop improving. You will stay the same, and then you'll actually start to progress worse because you don't have that aerobic fitness that we talk about. There's no base, um, and and it's like your house has been standing and it's got a really poor foundation it's been standing and people say ah oh, it's been going for 2 years no problem and all of a sudden that big wind comes and blows it over um and and this is what the analogy is here you're going well and and you're laughing at everybody else saying who needs to train 12 hours a week i'm just doing 3 and i'm i'm still ma- matching the ftp improvement that you are but but you can't keep that up. And, and if you did it for 28 weeks or 36 weeks, your actual FTP would start to go down because you don't have the aerobic fitness to sustain this week in, week out, three sessions a week. Um, and, and that's the thing that you need to understand. And there's plenty of cyclists or triathletes or swimmers or runners out there who are doing that style of program where they're, they're riding in their bunch or they're running with their running group. And they're just vlogging themselves week after week and doing very little in between. And all of a sudden, they're getting better and better and they're thinking, how good is this? And it gets to a point where they've done huge PBs, which is, which is brilliant. And that's a very satisfying thing to have happen. But that is unsustainable. At some point, they will start to plateau because they don't have the endurance base to sustain it. They get very tired of those sessions and they're not able to ride hard enough to have that progressive overload. Um, if they've averaged 260 watts one week and they're, you know, all of a sudden they, they're struggling to average 258 the next week or 260s, you know, out of their reach all of a sudden, um, it's because their body is really reached its plateau with the aerobic fitness that it has. And it's like the money's run out of the bank. The, the the money you put in the bank, the fitness you have in your body is got to a certain level and you've drained it all. Um, and there's no more money left in the bank. There's no more fitness left over to do that next hard training session or race or effort. And so therefore you will start to plateau and the plateau all of a sudden then will be a decline. And then you've got that mental issue of, geez, I'm riding crap. I'm running crap at the moment. I don't know what's wrong with me. And if you just step back and said, well, all I'm doing is the same hard hard sessions week in week out, month in month out, year in year out, and and that that's okay if that's what you want to do. But most people aren't okay with plateauing or or going backwards. They actually want to improve, and the expectation is even when they're seventy, they still want to improve, which 
which I love. But uh, but at the end of the day, that is unsustainable, and that is the key point about highlighting. You know, is Zone Two training worthwhile? Well, yes, it gives you that bank that's getting full of money week in, week out, because you're working every week and, and your fitness bank's getting full of aerobic capacity fitness because you are training properly. And, and you know, in 16 weeks' time, if we measured any other parameter other than the 20 minutes, uh, the person B would would be a, a long way behind person A. Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a great conclusion is um, we really don't want to undersell the, the fact that athlete B got a really, really good improvement um, and in the 20-minute test, that is, and that um, you don't want to leave that on the table and ignore that, um, but the general conclusion is you're going to be much better off in the long term, be a more well-rounded athlete, and you're going to have more options to you available about the, you know what kind of races you want to be and, and what you can actually do and, and more tools in your basket rather than just performing well in a 20-minute in a FTP test. And also, you know, you should be in this for the long term. You know, if you love being healthy and fit, you don't want to just have a 16-week period where you're on fire. You want to have that 16-week period in your own mind go for 16 years. And and we know from a lot of the athletes who've been on our program, their biggest improvement comes 15 months, 20 months into the program, not not 16 weeks, you know. It's it's 50 weeks or, or 75 weeks into the program when that they've they've got that huge jump. And we've shown so many examples of people going from 150 watts to 230 watts over 16 weeks. And then all of a sudden, you know, they improve five watts and then three watts over the next six months. And then they take the next step because they're filling that aerobic bank up um, uh, with all that that zone two and an endurance type of riding and strength work that's that's not all hard riding or hard running as a runner. Um, and so eventually that they're able to give more and progress better because they're coming from a bigger base. Um, so they can almost put their feet in the water from a higher point than they were, you know, a year ago. And and that's what you need to remember is that as you as you progress through a, a two-year or, or even a four-year program, you are just adding layer upon layer and you you have the ability to improve. And some people get to 16-week program and they've almost reached their ceiling uh, and they have because their aerobic fitness level won't let them go any further until they fix that up. It's like me expecting to ride well without me doing the strength and conditioning exercises after a back injury. If I don't do that, I'm not actually going to, my muscles are going to actually be, you know, breaking down before I can actually use them properly. So, so I think it's really, it's really a message that needs to be heard that, um, that you will get more progression, you will improve. And, and we've had so many older age group athletes who are in their fifties, early fifties, and then ended up in their 60s who are still riding better than they were in their 50s because they're doing this exact method. And, and you know, that that should be proof enough. But, you know, you would expect that from younger athletes who are in their 20s and 30s to continually improve regardless of, almost of what training they're doing. Um, but, you know, being more specific is going to give you more improvement in a better way. But um, But as an older athlete, that expectation is not there. As everybody keeps telling me over the years, oh, don't be don't be too frustrated if you're not improving because you're getting older. And and you know my response to that is that, you know that's just 
it's just not true. And and I've got so many examples of athletes that I coach, they're, they're still improving as they're getting older. Yeah, I think the last point I want to make is um, we haven't even talked about any of the co- more complicated topics like efficiency and economy, you know, how well you're moving, which comes, we know comes from volume and we can comes from that um, consistency in training and um, that repeatability, really getting your body um, as efficient as possible um, in the sport you're doing. And so, that's uh, just a whole other can of worms, but it's definitely a clear benefit to the more well-rounded athlete and someone that's doing that zone two training is um, there's a whole lot of factors there, but I was wanted to come to mind straight away where you go, we haven't even touched that, but um, that's where athlete B is really missing out on. So anything you want to say in conclusion? No, just um, I hope that, uh, you know, there are, I know there are lots of people out there who want to, who want to be a better athlete in their chosen sport um, and, and doing the shortcut is great for the short term. Um, that's my conclusion is that, you know, it is unsustainable. And as we know, unless you put a balanced sort of uh, plan in place, you will be found out eventually. And and you don't want to be that athlete. You want to be the athlete who's actually doing all the right things and then going to reap the benefits for years rather than be a flash in the pan. Great way to finish. That's another good end to an episode. Uh, That's it for this one. Uh, We're really looking forward to some of the guests that are coming on over the next few weeks. We've got some great returning guests that we love having on, uh, including one of the most revered uh, guests we've had, one of the most um, loved episodes of last year, and that's Professor Louise Burke. She'll be coming on very soon, which we're really excited about to have that episode as well as some other great guests. So stay tuned for them. Thanks, as always, for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. 